Good morning again. Christ, our Savior. Anyone else feel the weight of salvation? The weight of the fact that we're only saved by the blood and body of Jesus Christ? Anybody else feel that weight? I do. That's a, that's a heavy thing. There was a price to pay for our sins. And Christ did it for us. Can you get an amen for that? Christ did it for us. Amen. Mm. What a mighty king we serve. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter. And some of you may remember that we've been going through Peter when I preach quite a few times. We're going to finish up Peter today. And just to give you a little reminder, Peter is talking about, he's written this letter to believers, and there's a lot of false teachers, and the false teachers are very corrupt. They're greedy. Uh, they're, they are, they, uh, they go against God's commandments. They try to get believers to go the same way that they're going. Their, their eyes are full of adultery. They forsake the right way. They've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam. I mean, this is... We're talking the worst of the worst, and they've infiltrated the church. And so Peter is writing this letter to refute false teaching. So false teaching can find its way in the church. And so Peter's written this letter to refute this teaching. And so the title of this sermon today is Looking Forward to Eternity. Looking Forward to Eternity. You see, what Peter has done here is he's written this letter in refutation of the false teachers. And one of the, the methods he says that we can overcome false teachers is by looking towards eternity. Looking towards or forward to eternity. And our main text today is going to be 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. But we're going to do a little bit of review of chapter 3, verse 1 through 9, to kind of give you a heads up of what's going on here. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, Beloved, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter is saying, you know, I, I need to remind you of something. I need to remind your sincere mind, your sober, your clear mind of something. I'm stirring you up to action. Like a bee in a, a beehive, they're stirred up to action. And Peter's saying, I need to stir you up, your sincere, your clear mind. For what reason? So that you will remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What Peter is saying here is, I want to remind you of what you've already read in the Old Testament and what your apostles have spoken to you right now. I need to remind you of these things because the false teachers are telling you wrong things. And I need to remind you of what we've already taught you, which is also in the Old Testaments. And then he starts by saying, first of all, he's meaning foremost of all, that the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, their own desires. These are false teachers who are mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, they're mocking his second coming. 
Here's what they're saying in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They're saying, you know what, apostles, you know, nothing's really changed since the fathers fell asleep, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nothing's really changed. We haven't had a, another worldwide flood. Nothing's happened. Nothing's changed. Well, look what Peter says in verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. So it escaped their notice that, you know what? Something has changed. Something dramatic has changed. And that be in the flood. Now you notice it says that the mockers, in their mocking and their own lust, which they maintain, it escapes their notice. But there's a shift in verse 7. In verse 8 it says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. There's a shift. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. You see, that God doesn't see time the way that we see time, he says. So don't let it escape your notice, believers. Be different than the unbelievers. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. So there's a shift here. He says, your notice, beloved, the Lord is patient towards you, towards you, believers, not wishing for any, any of you, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord is patient towards you. Not every believer is a believer yet. That's why in Matthew 28, he says, go out and make disciples. Not everyone's a believer yet. It's our job as Christians to go out and make disciples. The Lord is waiting for many more to come to repentance. With repentance comes faith. So he's patient. He's waiting for many more to come to repentance and faith. And here comes our main text today, starting at verse 10. And it starts with, but, but, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord. Remember, he's been talking about the a thousand years is like one day with the Lord. And now he's saying, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What is the day of the Lord? Now, many of you who have studied eschatology know what the day of the Lord is. Well, we know it has something to do with the Lord. That's pretty common sense, right? But what is the day of the Lord? What is it? Well, it represents something in the past and something in the future. In the Old Testaments, when the prophets would give a prophecy of the day of the Lord, they had a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. For example, in Joel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
It's a day of judgment. It's a gloomy day of clouds and darkness, the day of the Lord. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about a coming judgment that's coming near and also a future judgment. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we see another picture of the day of the Lord. If you want to turn there, Revelation 19, verse 17. And it says, and this is a future day of the Lord. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. A day of gloom and destruction, darkness, death, is the day of the Lord. And then go over to chapter 20, verse 7. Now that day of the Lord I just read about was at the end of the tribulation. When the Lord is going to come and establish his thousand-year reign. Remember, A day in the Lord is like a thousand years to us. And so it's quick. So the first phase of the day of the Lord is before the thousand year reign of Christ. Before he sets up his earthly kingdom. The second half of the day of the Lord is after the thousand year reign of Christ. When there will be many born to believers who are not believers. And they will rebel against the Lord and Satan will be released from his prison to deceive the nations one last time. And then in verse verse 7 of chapter 20, it says this. When the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. And the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who, was dece- who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. You see, the day of the Lord is a dark, gloomy day. And you might be thinking right now, The title of your sermon is looking forward to the day of the Lord. I'm not looking forward to that. Are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy. (laughs) We'll get to why we're looking forward to the day of the Lord. We'll get to that. Let's go back to 2 Peter. 
and follow along here. Second Peter chapter 3 again. And he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Happy words, aren't they? So just think about this. When he says the heavens, he's meaning the realm and space that we think of as space. The heavens will pass away with a roar, with a loud roaring sound. And the elements will be melted down, is literally what it says, will be melting down with fervent heat. The elements are the the molecules, the atoms, the, the basics of everything that exists. Everything. He's basically saying everything will be melted down. Not partially, everything. This is certain, certainly not a, the world's going to get better and then Christ is going to come type of situation. Everything will be melted, will be burned up. But, but, look at verse 11. Look what Peter says. He's reasoning with his audience. He's saying, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since this is going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since you know this is going to happen, the day of the Lord is coming. It's the day of Christ's return. Since you know these things are going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the main question. You see, we can study eschatology, and we can know all the details. But the key is, what sort of person ought you to be, knowing that Christ is returning? That's the key. Now, he's asking a rhetorical question. He's not really wanting to know what sort of person you should be. He's saying, you should be, should be, in other words, he's saying, you should be holy in your conduct and fear God in your heart. You should be. Because when he says here, holy conduct, he's meaning your outer attitude towards other people. Your conduct amongst others. And he's talking about godliness. He's talking about your your inner gratitude and your, your awe and your worship of God in your inner self, who you truly are when no one is around. What sort of person ought you to be? Christ is coming. Christ is coming. What sort of person ought you to be? Now remember, the false teachers were saying Christ isn't coming. What do we hear today? we got to make the world better before Christ comes. (laughs) It's almost the same thing. But Peter's saying, beloved, Christ is coming. What sort of person ought you to be? There's going to be intense heat and burning up of the elements. You should be holy in your conduct and fear God. The fear of God. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I become more holy in my conduct and have more fear of God? Well, look over at 2 Peter chapter 1. 
He gives the answer already. So he's kind of following up with something he's already taught. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he says something very interesting and powerful. He says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's how we can be better in our conduct and our awe of God. God's given us the ability to do that by his divine power that has granted to us these things through the true knowledge of him who called us. God has granted that to us. He's given us the ability to be holy in our conduct and to have fear of him through the gift of faith that we act out. That's how we do that. It's from grace to everything pertaining to life and godliness. By God's grace, he's given us. Remember, he's given us something we don't deserve. By God's grace, he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. To live a holy and upright life. True life versus death. Being born in, in our trespasses and sins. We were dead, but now we're made alive in Christ. So everything pertaining to life and godliness, that leads to spiritual vitality, livelihood, the ability to do what's right, to be alive, which leads to holy conduct. You see, it's not that you wake up in the morning and you say, I want to do what's right today. I'm a good person. I'm going to do all these steps, step one, two, and three, to be a good guy today. Rather, it's, I love Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. He's given me the ability to respond to him in obedience, the vitality of life to live the way he wants me to live. And that's what I'll do. Back to chapter 3. In verse 12, he says, looking, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of Lord. What he's saying here is we should be holy in our conduct and godliness while we're looking forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. While we're looking forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. This is a simultaneous thing. We should be looking forward to the day and hastening. What does he mean by hasten? He means quicken Christ's return. You should be anxious, motivated for the return of Christ. It shouldn't be a dread for you. And I know you're probably thinking, wait a minute. Why should I be looking forward to darkness and gloom and destruction? We're going to get to that. But you should be looking forward to this day, this coming, the second coming of Christ. His presence. You should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now that word coming is a heavy word. It's parousia. It means the coming. The arrival of Christ. The coming. His coming. His second coming. The second advent. We should be hastening his second coming. What does it mean 
How, how can we hasten his second coming? How do we want it to come faster? Come, Lord Jesus. Listen to your creation. Groan. How do we hasten his second coming? By Bible studies, church, membership, fellowship, sermons. <laughs> we're waiting for his return. But while we're waiting like busy bees, Peter is saying, I'm trying to stir you up to do something while you're waiting. Don't sit back on the couch and recline. Get busy like a bee. Get stirred up. Doing what? Spreading the gospel. Teaching them all that I commanded you, he says in Matthew 28. Spread the gospel. The good news. It's good news. The return of Christ is good news. And I didn't forget. I know you're wondering, how is this good news? (laughs) It is. I promise you. I promise you. We're going to get there. Wait till the end of the movie. He says, you're supposed to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which, because of this coming, the which means the coming, because of the coming, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So wait a minute. We're making a connection here. Before the coming of Christ, there's going to be burning up. The, the heavens will be destroyed by burning the elements will melt with intense heat. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, <laughs> this is the beauty right here. But according to his promise, we, now who's he talking about? We covered that back in verse 8 when he went to a different person. He says, your and beloved to you and that the Lord is patient for you, for you not to perish, and for all of you to come to repentance. So now he's talking to that you when he says, but according to his promise, we, now it's, he's saying we, meaning believers, are looking. So Peter's saying we're, we're now looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's why we're looking forward to the destruction. Because after the destruction of the old heavens and the old earth, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That's why we say, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day of the Lord, the day of God, when a new heavens and a new earth will come. After the burning up, when new things will come, How many of you remember when you got a new pair of shoes when you were a kid and you went to school with your new shoes on? I used to love that feeling of throwing the old ones in the trash, putting on my new shoes. But this is better than a pair of shoes. A new heavens and a new earth. Just think of that. When you drive home today and you you drive through the neighborhood and you're on your way home, look at the earth and the heavens and just think we're going to get a new heavens and a new earth. But first, this one must be destroyed. Very plain and simple. There must come destruction first. We're not asking for peace and safety in the land for Christ to return. It says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We don't know when that day will be. We're supposed to be busy teaching them all that he commanded us. He says he's with us (laughs) to do that. 
What is his promise? What is his promise? What is it talking about here? But according to his promise. What promise is he talking about? Well, surely if you read Revelation, we know about the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. But Peter's readers have not read the book of Revelation. What is the promise? Well, it's the same promise, but it's all over Scripture. One example is in Isaiah 65. Let's all turn there. Isaiah 65. Now, while you turn there, Isaiah is going to give a picture of the beginning of the day of the Lord and the end. Remember, I told you those two areas before the millennial and after the millennial kingdom, those two great days of destruction. And Isaiah is going to blend them together. Remember, I told you that prophets would have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment of the end days or of the day of the Lord. And in Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says here, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Just, just think of that. He's mixing together this day of the Lord, starting before the millennial kingdom, during the millennial, after the millennial, all the way until the final day. Remember, a day to the Lord is a thousand years to us. The millennial kingdom is a thousand years. This is what he's talking about when he says the day of the Lord. And Isaiah gives us a beautiful picture of the day of the Lord. And he talks about a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Why will righteousness dwell in the new heavens and new earth? Because the righteous one is the king there. Now, you might say, wait a minute. So we're supposed to look forward to this day of destruction because afterwards we get a new heaven and a new earth. That sounds crazy. Not really. How many of you have heard of Polycarp? He was a third century uh, martyr. He was martyred. For Christ. Listen to this. And this is in a, a, a book written called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And listen what this says. And he was brought before uh, a, a council, like a government leadership, kind of like Christ was brought forward uh, to the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what it says. And when the proconsul yet again pressed him, 
and said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. You remember the Romans, they had emperor worship. And they were trying to get him to swear by Caesar. Bow to Caesar, basically. And the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. He's saying, if you don't repeat, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you burned up. Whew, that gets real serious real quick, doesn't it? But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished? But are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly? Polycarp's saying, are you kidding me? Do you know the fire that you're going to face? But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. While he spoke these and many other like things, he was filled with confidence and joy. Just think of that. He's about to be burned up, and he's filled with confidence and joy. Does that bring to your mind James chapter 1? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, Polycarp was trusting in the Lord. He was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him. So basically, he wasn't troubled. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burnt alive. For thus it behooved the vision which was revealed to him in regard to his pillow to be fulfilled. When seeing it on fire as he was praying, he turned about and said prophetically to the faithful that were with him, I must be burnt alive. Finished his prayer. He finished his prayer, and those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire. And as the flame blazed forth in great fury, for the fire shaping itself into the form of an ark, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed uh, as by a circle the body of the martyr. So the fire was around him. And he appeared within not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. At length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. And on his doing this, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished. You see, Polycarp said, you know what? You're going to have to burn me. I'm not going to deny Christ. He looked forward to the day of the Lord. He was full of grace and joy and confidence in the day of the Lord. And he talked about the great fire that was coming to consume the earth. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have, looking forward to the day of the Lord. Verse 14. Therefore. So the therefore is talking about, since we know the heavens and the earth are going to pass away, they're going to melt with intense heat. But we should be looking forward to a new heaven and earth. He gives them a practical way to carry this out. And a few imperative commands. And the first one is be diligent. So verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. He's giving an imperative command. Be diligent. 
Be diligent for what? To be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Peace, spotless, and blameless. What is this peace that he's talking about? He's talking about don't let the false teachers get you all riled up thinking the wrong things. Be at peace with the truth that you remembered from the apostles and from the prophets of the Old Testament. Be confident of the things you already know. Don't let them get you stirred up for the wrong reason. I'm trying to stir you up for the right reason, he's saying. Be spotless and blameless. Be unstained from the inside. And be without criticism on the outside, like we talked about before. Now, this is interesting because in chapter 2, verse 13, it says about the false teachers, it says in verse 13 of chapter 2, Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they, the false teachers, count it as pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. He's saying don't be like the the false teachers who are stains and blemishes. You be spotless and blameless. Don't be like them. The next imperative he gives is in verse 15. He says, and, and regard. That's the next imperative. Regard, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. One day to the Lord is a thousand years to us. A thousand years to us is one day to the Lord. The Lord is being patient. He's going back to verse 9 when he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's saying, I'm being patient. The Lord is being patient to you. But this is a command in verse 15 Peter is giving. He says, regard. Regard the Lord's patience as salvation. Understand the truth. It's the Lord's long-suffering, his forbearance, his mercy. Realize that. Realize that. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 2 here. And uh, you don't have to flip there. Romans 2 verse 4, really quick. And it says this. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, brothers and sisters, we have to repent. The Lord is coming. Be found by him, spotless and blameless. Regard his patience as salvation. He's patiently waiting for you to repent because with repentance comes faith also at the same time. And with faith, we have salvation. The famous verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Then he goes on to say, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, he said, regard these things, regard the Lord's patience as salvation, just like Paul told you to do. Just like Paul told you to do. And then he gives a little exhortation about Paul's letters. And he says, 
as also in his letters, Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Now, this is a heavy text here. We can have a whole sermon on this verse about Paul. We're not going to get into that. But basically what he's saying, that Paul has already written this to you, and the false teachers are trying to distort what Paul said. So there's a lot of correction going on here. You might say, well, what did Paul say to them? Well, I'll give you one example. If you want to go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1. Paul, this is Paul writing to those in Thessalonica, and he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So Paul's saying, it's coming. While they are saying peace and safety, the false teachers are saying it's going to be peace and safety coming. But guess what's going to happen? Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains on a woman with a child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of day nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. You see, Paul was stirring them up too when he's saying be alert and sober. He's saying be like that busy bee. Go spread the gospel. Be about my work, the Lord is saying. So Paul has already written these things. And they distort Paul's writing just as they're distorting the rest of Scripture, it says. Which leads to their own destruction. And then in 2 Peter, back to 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, that's false things, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They denied the master. Now, they weren't believers. What they're saying is these people were claiming to be believers. They're claiming that Christ was their their master, that he paid for their sins. But they denied Christ's second coming. Now they're saying, no, he's not coming. And guess what? They had the knowledge. And and verse 20 of chapter 2, it says this about the false teachers. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments handed on to them. These are not people who have not heard the word of God. They're well versed in the scripture. These are false teachers. We have to stay away from them. But then once again he says, you therefore, we have another command coming up here, another imperative In verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Why do you know? Because he said in the beginning to remember what the 
the prophets of the Old Testament and what the apostles have already taught them. He's saying, you, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. Be steadfast, immovable. He says, don't be carried away by their false doctrine. Be steady in what you already know. How do you know it? By studying the scripture. Be well-versed in the scripture, people of God. So you won't be carried away. He says, be on guard. Just as in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, it's laid out for us. It's almost like a legal document and a lawyer is laying out the, the, the accusations against the criminal. He did this, 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 and this. He's violated this law, this law, this law, and this law. Well, that's what Second Peter chapter 2 is. It's a layout of what the false prophets have done. It's a listing of every single thing that they've been involved in. So in this way, Peter is teaching them the way of the false prophet. And he's saying, be aware of the false prophet. And that's how you can stay on guard. By having the knowledge of the Lord. Stay on guard by your knowledge of scripture and understanding. So that you're not carried away. You're supposed to be like a Berean. When Paul left Thessalonica, he went to Berea and they accepted him there. But the Thessalonians pushed him out of the city. But in Berea, they accepted him and they looked at the scripture to see if everything he said was true. We should be like Bereans. Read the scripture. Read the the text. And then he gives one more imperative command in verse 18. And that is, but grow, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. Don't just be saved and say, you know, I got baptized. I went to church one time and I'm good to go. No, he says, grow, grow, keep going. Go back to chapter one. And look at verse five. In verse four, we've already talked about this in verse three and four, how his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has given us the ability to grow. And then in verse 5, he exhorts us to do that very thing. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. Now he says, here's your part. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Supply. That's how you grow. It's not a sit back and one day I hope, poof, I'm a different person. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And who's the Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's the him that we've been talking about this, this whole time. In verse 18, he says, in the knowledge of our Lord, he's acknowledging that Jesus Christ is your Lord. If you're saved and he's your Savior. And then he says, to him, to who? The Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be what? The glory. To him be the glory. As a Christian, do you give glory to anyone else other than God? No. This is showing the deity of Christ. He is our Lord and Master and Savior. 
He is the Lord. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So we give Christ the glory for everything that we do, for our growth, for these imperatives that he's told us to do. We're able to do that by our faith, which is a gift from God in Ephesians 2, it says that. So grow. I exhort you all to grow in your relationship with Christ. Grow in the grace and mercy of God. Grow. Do all the more to be the things that it says in chapter 1. And if you don't know Christ today, I say believe in him. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his salvation. Know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way. Nobody comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. You will not have eternal salvation without Jesus Christ. You must believe and repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll be saved. Believe in him today. Put your trust in him beyond all else. Let's pray. Father, We come to you today. We cry out, Abba, Father. We call you Daddy. We have a relationship with you because of your Son. He is our high priest. He's our salvation. He's our everything. Lord, while we come out of here today, although we're saved and we're able to not sin, We still sin, Lord. But you've forgiven us through your son, Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for your mercy upon us, Lord. As we look forward to eternity, please help us in every step that we make as we leave this building, that we can be focused on your eternal graciousness through the new heavens and the new earth, and that we can live Christ-like lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.